I'm Rachel Krause, and we are here to explore and unpack the essence, architecture, and DNA of purpose across industries, professions, relationships, and even within paradox. On this podcast, we will uncover the stories and journeys of our guests, unlocking pathways to grow, to gain, and to give. This is Listen on Purpose from Kindred Media. Today, we explore resilience and creativity in a truly inspiring and illuminating conversation with Aaron Mitchell. As a thought leader and change maker, having served as an HR leader for Netflix Animation Studio and current board member at UNICEF, Aaron uses what he has learned from his family and his background in music to find the harmony of dissonance. Hey, Aaron. Hello, hello. How are you? How are you? It's so nice to have you. Um. Excited to be here. I've been thinking about this conversation all week. Oh my gosh, me too. We're thrilled and it's a privilege to have you here and for our listeners to be able to join and to have some time and insight and wisdom. So our topic today, as is on point and in tune with the whole genesis and orientation of this podcast is all about purpose and looking at the different intersections and cross sections and cross currents, the things that feed and breathe and mobilize how we find, identify, characterize and live with purpose and across blurring those functions. It's not about work. It's not about home. It's not about relationships. It's everything and all of the above. So before we get into the specific topics for today, can you introduce us to Aaron? Introduce us to Aaron Mitchell. Absolutely. So Aaron Mitchell, I am currently leading human resources for Netflix's animation studio, but I always like to tell a little bit about how I got to this point so that it all makes sense. I was born in a working class community in New Haven, Connecticut, father, a mechanic, mother, decorated cakes, lived in the same household as my grandparents. My grandfather was a construction worker, a union carpenter. My grandmother was a cook in a daycare. And so I had this really strong community family foundation and surroundings that were probably a little less safe than the inside of the house, but it sort of curated this idea of resilience. Went to a performing arts high school. I wanted to go for visual arts. I ended up going for music instead. My mom sort of forced that issue. I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I eventually came to love music and I've been playing the saxophone for 27 years now. It's something that I love as much as I love my children. I met my wife freshman year of college, went to study at Temple University, met my wife. We've been together since freshman year of college. So you celebrate 15 years of marriage this year, 21 years of being together. We still laugh at each other's jokes. We still enjoy being around each other. I still look forward to seeing her when I get home tonight. It's been a very fun journey growing up with somebody and bouncing yourself off of that somebody as you both grow and shape. We've been in sort of like four relationships at this point, just based on who we've been at all these different points in our life. And then sort of stumbled upon this opportunity to move to where I'm at now, Netflix animation. I had spent most of my career, or I've spent all my career working in HR, started off in food, moved into banking, lived in Singapore for about four and a half years with Citibank came back working for a life insurance company. And then one day I got the call to join Netflix, which was a long shot type opportunity. I said yes, because my wife told me I should, not because I was interested. And the the rest (laughs) is history. Yeah, that's what everybody always tells me. Listen to your wife. And it's worked out for me at every point in my life. So thank you for the background. It gives us a little bit of a window into upbringing. It sounds like your family was just this backbone and your values were shaped and creativity shaped 
by that experience. And what was it like growing up with your grandparents under one roof? I thought it was weird for people who didn't. So the way that house was, it was a three-family house. And, you know, one of those old East Coast, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm sure there's a, the proper definition for it. But my grandparents lived on the first floor. We lived on the third floor. So literally, and I'll say this, I don't think my parents would ever admit this, but when they got tired of us, they're like, go spend some time with your grandparents. And so we got the benefit of this communal upbringing. When I would talk to my friends, they're like, yeah, we're going to see our grandparents this weekend. I'm like, okay, isn't that like every day? Because I thought everybody lived this way. For me, what, it, what was important about it was like, I got to experience multiple generations. My grandparents, traditionalist in terms of generations are concerned. So I got to grow up with their set of values contrasted against my parents' boomer values. And none of it ever seemed weird to me. So I made it all make sense. And I feel like it gave me an advantage in dealing with people because I've always been able to deal with people regardless of their generation, regardless of their background. I can find some commonality. And it's because I was immersed in an environment where I had to have conversations with my grandparents ever since I can remember. And it was never awkward to talk to people who were older or of a different mindset or of a different era. Because my grandparents also immigrated to New Haven from North Carolina back in the 50s. And so had a very different upbringing. My grandmother was a sharecropper. Working outside and cleaning up after ourselves was kind of an expectation and we never got anybody to do it for us. So all these things just came together and created what I think is a super rich upbringing, but I don't know anything different. So It's interesting, the intergenerational lens, the intergenerational dynamics of how it makes you or shapes thinking, appreciation, values, the differences of perspective, what's rear-facing, what's forward-facing. It's remarkable to be able to have that upbringing literally under one roof and to have exposure and experience with that. And it sounds like also how that has helped shape your experience with others, whether it's role in leadership and what you're doing at Netflix or what you did in the banking industry and how that factored in. So you mentioned before about music, how you were, I don't want to say forced, but Forced. Encouraged <laughs> or forced to go into that. And really your heart was in the visual arts space. Yeah. So I grew up, as I mentioned, my mom decorated cakes. My mom, very much an artist. And so I grew up encouraged by her. I won't call myself a mama's boy, but I'm very close to my mom. Doing what she did was just natural for me. I played saxophone and clarinet a couple years. Didn't really like it. I hated the clarinet more than life at one point because it was just so hard to play. And so after that experience, I'm like, I'm never doing this again. And that was like seventh and eighth grade. And then come high school, I'm like, I'm going to go to this performing arts high school and I'm going to finally be able to hone my craft of art. Because I drew all the time, whatever free time I had, I would draw. I was into comic books. I wanted to draw my own comic books. And then my mom gets to the school and she convinces the principal to accept me into this competitive arts program because I had played the saxophone and clarinet a couple of years. And I'm like, but I suck, mom. What are you doing? I want to draw. And interestingly enough, I love my mom for this decision because I don't know if she saw this, but I was a very shy child. I won't say that I was introverted, but I was absolutely shy and withdrawn. And I didn't have a voice. And music pulled all of those things out of me specifically being a saxophone player. Once I started to have to take solos and stand up and be the center of attention and people clapped and then they came up to you afterwards and they wanted to talk to you about stuff, it forced me to develop this part of my personality that if I had stuck to art, 
I would have been happy to lay dormant. But I think that's the thing about moms. Sometimes they can see things in their children that the children can't see themselves. So crazy how something could have remained dormant. And here it was with the unlock capability to extract all this secret magic inside and what would have been left on the table otherwise. You're right. Mamas always know. (laughs) Moms always know. Write it down. Tell your kids. Yes, exactly. Okay. So here you are now playing the saxophone. When did it start to become you? You talked about your love of it earlier. Mm -hmm. When did it start to become part of your identity, part of your expression and part of your soul? It was really my sophomore year of high school. Junior year is when I really started to find my voice in it, but it got unlocked sophomore year. We had this drill sergeant of a music teacher named Harold Eugene Riley. This man was scary. He was mean. He was a force and so much a force. And I'm going to tell this real quick story. Like one day, the principal, who was also a force and most beautiful human being, but also just walking chaos, which is all about the arts. The arts is chaos. And she embodied that in her spirit. She comes down to the room to talk to the teacher. One of us kids goes to answer the door and he yells, I don't care if Jesus Christ is at the door. Nobody gets out of their chair unless I say so. And I'm doing the most mild version of this man possible. But his purpose, it's like watching the Mighty Ducks or some other one of those shows where you get a ragtag group of people, they're all undisciplined. When he got to this music program, which was in shambles, there's maybe 30 students. By the time the year had finished, there was maybe eight of us left. But the eight of us left were all the ones that had the discipline, the interest, the capability, because it wasn't about talent. Some of the most talented people left under this man, but it was ones that had the discipline, that had the respect, had the composure, And he took those eight of us and he turned us into musicians. And I remember the first time I played a song and it sounded like a song. There's learning music and then there's being a musician. And there was this flip that happened where I went from making noise to making music and I was Mm. doing with other people. It was magic. And I remember the day that that happened, I can still see it. I can still remember the song we played. We played Mood Indigo a Duke Ellington song, and it felt perfect. Everything vibrated a certain way. And that was the moment where I'm like, oh, the reason I didn't like music is because I wasn't doing music. And so it was Harold Eugene Riley that unlocked that. And then I was hooked for life. I've been looking for the music in everything ever since. Right. It's like the difference between playing music and becoming music or becoming totally in sync. And I know that our topic specifically today is really around this harmony of dissonance and unpacking the tension that exists there and also the symbiotic congruence that exists there. There's a powerful synergy even between those opposing forces. So talk a little bit more about the music element, becoming music and how that helped shape other areas, whether it was relationships or work or creative thinking, problem solving. How did music become the centerpiece in how you think and operate? The first thing that happened for me with it when music, again, I was shy. I didn't have a lot of friends, to be honest with you. I wasn't the popular kid. I wasn't athletic. All the things that you assign value to when you're young, I wasn't those things. And I wasn't even academically at the top of the class. I was average at best. For me, on this topic of harmony, 
I think the first time I experienced connecting with people in a really meaningful way was through music. And it was through literally achieving that harmony. You had seven or eight different horn players all playing different notes. And when everybody was tuned and they were playing the music exactly as it was supposed to be played, not based on what they were reading, but based on listening to one another, it created that energy, that vibration that I talk about. But that thing is not the instrument. That thing is the thing that's within us. When I think about my looking for the music and everything, I'm always looking for that vibration in people. I think it's created this desire to find those harmonies in people. Because I think about harmony, like I think about the topic of inclusion. It's all of these things. Now, inclusion doesn't mean diversity. It doesn't mean even really agreement. It just means that there's a bunch of stuff that's existing in the same space. Now, there's a magic to it. There are good harmonies and there are bad harmonies. There are pleasant harmonies and unpleasant harmonies. But that need or desire to achieve that harmony I think became more of an obsession of mine through music because I didn't have a way to access it before music. I didn't have a way to even understand it before music because being withdrawn, being more shy, being unpopular meant that I wasn't even having those types of conversations with people. But once music happens, it was like, oh wait, this exists everywhere. And it, even if these people aren't musicians, there's a vibration here that you can tap into, whether it be how you converse with people, whether it be how you tell jokes with people, there's a version of this harmony in just about everything. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, totally. No, it makes a ton of sense. And even moving into the music realm for a moment with the actual mechanics around harmony, even tactics like suspension or working with dissonance and you move off of a note and then it all of a sudden comes together and it almost requires that tension to then evolve mm -hmm. and punctuate this magic sound that permeates, that vibrates, that has energy, that has rhythm and rhyme and real centrality around that voice or that sound. That's incredible to hear how you see that in people and in people's rhythm and call mm -hmm. it biorhythm, energy, read, the language of the soul. And this is a very, very recent epiphany. I was thinking about dissonance in the context of diversity and inclusion and whatnot. The opposite of dissonance is consonance in music. So you have dissonant chords, which are from a very technical perspective, when you have frequencies that are very close to one another. If you think about that line of frequency and you have another line that's similar to it, but just slightly different enough that it creates this sort of friction in between the two harmonies. And if you stack those things on top of each other, Across just about every single culture, there's a negative reaction to that type of dissonance, to like very strong dissonance. The opposite is true of consonants. Different cultures respond to different sorts of consonants, like a major chord versus a minor chord. Different cultures will assign certain emotions to those things. Different cultures will think about those things as, ooh, that's happy or that's bright. But all cultures have a negative reaction to dissonance. And if I think about dissonance and consonance, like I think about people, too many of the same things bundled together produces something that is unpleasant, that is negative, that is yearning for something for that difference, i.e. a lack of diversity in a space is typically an unpleasant experience for all of humanity. And in order to improve upon how we think about these things, we need more consonants. Not all dissonance is bad. If you have a major seventh chord, 
and you add a ninth, which between your first tone and your second tone, there's some dissonance there, but it feels better because you've got all these differences, right? Yeah, and you have breath so in between. You have breath in between, and the differences and the colors make that dissonance less intolerable. That's how I'm trying to look at the world and trying to make sense of why we, in our heart and soul, know that inclusion and diversity and addressing some of these issues that we see in society are important because at our core and in the frequencies that we hear in the world, we know these things to be true. And it's interesting because even through the metaphor and the vehicle of music, what you're describing, and thank you for pointing out the distinction because diversity is not inclusion. And I know you spend your life's work and professional work in that space by thinking about adding on that ninth, that there's a place for it because it creates enough texture with enough harmony, but not because it's a perfect match, but because it's included. And that's part of creating space and breath for voice and for spreading into the space and including within that using, I guess, both consonants and dissonance at the same time. So you shared a very powerful insight when we were talking in our last conversation. And I would love for you to share this incredible perspective and what it means to you, how you thought about it, and how this has helped shape. So I'm not going to give it away, but I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we were talking about just our understanding of systems. And, and I think through the Western lens, all music is based on middle C. The key word there is all Western music. All Western music, all notation centers on middle C as the normal thing by which everything else is a derivative. The conversation you and I were having around was essentially like middle C is kind of like, in the context of America, the straight white male. It's the thing that all other things are compared to, but it's only true in that context because middle C in music that comes out of Persia or music that comes out of China or music that comes out of Japan or so many other places that didn't have a Western-centered view, middle C is not the end-all be-all. It's not the thing that sits in the middle of the staff line because even that notation system is a very much Western thing. When you think about it from that perspective, unfortunately, it kind of blows your mind because you're like, oh crap, well, if, if I can't use this system of Western music to make sense of everything, then how does it all make sense? And the point is, it doesn't have to. All of these different approaches to music are all right and all correct in their context, but they're only abnormal or an altered scale or sharps and flats when compared to the thing that we consider to be normal. And so if we use music, as a proxy for how we look at the world, let's just be a little bit more creative than using one single note to define everything. Amazing. And what happens if it's not one single note? What happens if that thinking is expanded and if that thinking is replaced, essentially? Specifically, let's say with jazz, because I know that jazz is the forte. Talk me through how that theory helps marry with your love and appreciation of jazz and how that has also helped shape your thinking in terms of your professional space. I'll say this. I've played jazz music for 27 years. I sometimes have a hard time calling myself a jazz musician because I haven't lived the profession, but I very much have an affinity toward jazz musicians, towards jazz music. Some of my most important mentors actively in my life were jazz musicians. So I draw a lot from that. And I remember taking 
theory in college, minoring in music. I took jazz theory classes. I took counterpoint. I took Western harmony courses. And I remember how jazz, they tried to notate it a certain way. They tried to explain certain things a certain way. And they would always get to this point where it's like, this is the best explanation that we have for where this beat is supposed to sit. Hmm. It's not a perfect representation, but we don't know how to really depict this thing the way that, let's say, Jackie McLean played it or the way that Miles Davis approached it. And oh, by the way, a lot of these musicians threw out conventional Western techniques, and that's the thing that made them sound a certain way, that made their music meaningful. And that's where I started to think, well, if you could have somebody like a John Coltrane or a Miles Davis or a Coleman Hawkins be the very best at the thing that they're doing and not have to exist within this box that is Western music, then Western music must not be applicable to all things. Okay, wait, where does jazz music come from? What's the root? What's the source? Oh, you've got all of these other influences. You've got West African music. You've got some of the music that came from indigenous peoples and it's all being mixed in and it's not taking all of its cues from Western music, but it's still amazing and it's still emotional and it's still relevant. There must be more than one version of right. It's a, such a powerful transformative way of thinking. And music is one of those common languages, even though the cultural nuance and the historical background of the different styles and modalities are really unique and individual to certain geographies or religions or places, even though each one has its own narrative, it's a powerful transformative nuance that it's all right. And the commonality is that the language is universal. So music is it's the language of the soul. It speaks far broader and deeper than words can possibly capture. So to be able to see that multiple truths, multiple realities can exist, trust embedded in music. So that's really such a powerful transformative lens to look at it and almost have the same dimensions apply, whether it's tone and texture and tenor and pitch and Rhythm. all of those. Yeah, all the things. Like you said, they manifest themselves differently there's different patterns and everything. There's a different shared language within. But as far as I can tell, music is one of those things that is universally human. Yeah. And it sounds like, aside from the fact that it means something so personal to you, you've turned that gift and understanding forward in terms of creating workspaces and dynamics that help to achieve that same goal. Yeah. And the way I think about it is if we can achieve that through music... Music is almost an indigenous language for many of us. So if it's true that this music has this universal ability to communicate, then it must mean that somewhere within us that exists as well. I've right. taken my saxophone everywhere that I've lived. I've played as a result everywhere that I've lived, including four and a half years in Singapore, including a trip that I took down to Salvador, Brazil last year. And every single time, I was able to make real connections with people without the common spoken word. And that for me then translates to, okay, well, if there's a language barrier in the work that I'm doing, how can I find what that common goal, common objective, common humanity is in this moment, whether it be working with my colleagues in India on project management and knowing, okay, we may be playing a different song, but it's still a song. And so if I can find that common truth, then we can move forward. Right. But seeking that common ground, not just either waiting for it or only engaging once it's established, but proactively seeking that common ground using this influence of rhythm 
and it's somehow indigenous. The truth is, and you talk about the value of human and the human spirit, a heartbeat, that's rhythm right there. So it's inherent even in our own physiology that there's a, mm-hmm. an aspect of movement and sound and a rhythm that exists. And you are also on the board of UNICEF. I am, yes. So can you share a little bit about the kind of work that you do and what that means? And we're going to keep coming back to this punchline of the harmony of dissonance and how these thematics work together. When I got approached, I was being considered for the UNICEF board. First thing that the recruiter asked me, do you care about children? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know how to answer that without sounding weird. So let me think about how I'm going to answer that. And then I thought back to this experience that I had when I was living in Singapore. So Singapore, very tiny island, smack dab in the middle of Malaysia, Indonesia, the big archipelago. Had a couple friends who took a ferry down to a small island in Indonesia called Batam. And while on this island, they randomly saw a group of dark-skinned children that they just assumed to be of African descent. And they're like, it's weird. It's a bunch of these kids down here, but they look like they live here. They approached the folks and it turned out to be an orphanage. And the children were actually from Papua, which is home to a large indigenous group of people who appear to be of African descent, but genetically are very much removed from Africa, but Mm. similar hair texture, similar features, etc. And unfortunately, seeing difference in people based on physical characteristics is a common human experience. And so these children, all of which were in this orphanage because the people who ran the orphanage wanted a better life for them than what was possible in Papua, decided to create this orphanage, but they didn't have the funds that they needed in order to really help these children unlock all of their potential. And so we got involved in helping to raise money to get these children into a private school so that they could start to move forward in education so that they would be in a place where they were protected away from the discrimination that was inherent in their difference and all these things. It turned out that seeing us, and this was, by the way, a group of African-Americans that lived in Singapore. There was a small number of us that built a community together. And so these kids seeing us, there was some at least visible commonality that helped them think to themselves, you know what? I am better than how people see me. I can do more. I can achieve more. And these people who saw us are helping us achieve that. And it was based on this, I'll stick with the theme, this common vibration. We understood the the plight that they were in, even though we had very little in common in terms of our backgrounds, our genetic lineage. There was this sort of, we know what it's like to be counted out and considered not viable in a society that where you're the minority. And that commonality allowed us to go and help. But it was not easy. We ended up having to almost smuggle the money into Indonesia because transferring money through banks was not possible. So literally a group of friends, we counted the number because it was a large sum of money. We split the money between four or five people. So none of us was carrying more than the maximum amount you could carry. And it was like one of those episodes of Locked Up Abroad. I thought at any moment we're going to get pulled aside and they're like, what are you doing with duffel bags of cash? We're paying for school for kids. I don't think they would have believed us. So this whole thing happens. We get the kids in the school and then I'm like, oh, crap, I do care about kids. So that's the story I told when they asked me at UNICEF, you know, do you care about kids? And it ended up being exactly the kind of work that they do, that they facilitate. And I'm like, man, if only I had known that UNICEF did that kind of work back then. 
could have saved myself the trouble and just called UNICEF to deliver the money. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I'm sure they were taken by that story that you shared. Yeah, and I've been on the board now just over a year. I'm now on co-chair of the Nominating and Governance Committee, helping to shape the board recruitment practices. So as we continue to grow the board, we can bring in new perspectives, we can bring in new lived experiences so that we can do this work for the world's children. I think with a broader perspective than I think we've always had, because as these organizations evolve and grow and as we get more information on the world and more people are growing up in a world that is more connected, we realize that we benefit from having more and more of these experiences at the table as we make decisions. Wow. And what I'm hearing is that you are also so mindful and intentional about how all of these different pieces coalesce around, whether it's upbringing and influence coming from where you grew up and the amazing values that you described of your family, UNICEF, music, these inputs and how it shapes your thinking around inclusion, diversity, and in the workplace and relationships. And you talked about your wife, which everybody should talk about their wife the way you talk about your wife. It's magnificent. What I'm hearing is that this is not by accident. You've had these experiences and you've threaded a commonality between them and you've harnessed that to be able to face it outward and to create a meaningful life around you and for others. It's remarkable to hear that level of intentional living, which was obviously based on a purpose-driven existence. When you hear and think about that word purpose, how does that play a role throughout all of these different elements? I've thought about this a lot. I'm close to both my parents. I talk about my mom a lot more because my mom is just the louder one in all the good ways. But the one thing that I always saw my mom do is not accept things for what they were. So I told the story about my mom told me that I was going to do music. The part of the story that I left out was I wasn't actually admitted to this performing arts school. There's this rule in the New Haven public school system that if your sibling goes to a particular school, and this was a magnet school, that you're automatically admitted into this school. For some reason, that didn't apply when I came to go to the school. They wanted to put me into one of the bigger non-magnet schools And my mom was like, that's not acceptable. And of course, I'm like, but mom, what are you going to do? My mom was like, I'm going to protest because it's not right. And I'm not going to let them get away with doing something that's not right. What my mother did was she kept me out of school for two months because she understood that there was something that was going to trigger. At the 60th day when I was no longer in school, the truancy report goes directly to the superintendent and the superintendent has to call the parent And she's like, when he calls, I'm going to tell him why I've kept you out of school and he's going to take my meeting. And I'm like, all right, mom, if you say so. And that's exactly what happened. And then she made her case. And then I'm in this school. And then she's telling me what I'm going to do because she made this whole big stink about getting me into the school. And she's like, you're going to make an impact while you're there. And so I don't think I've ever had a choice but to live a purpose-driven life because We didn't have much growing up. My mom and my dad fought for everything that we had, and they made sure that they weren't doing it for just any old reason. They were doing it because they wanted to make sure that the people who were in charge knew that they were responsible for making the right decisions, that they could not overlook people, that they could not treat anybody like they didn't matter. And that meant that everything that I had to do in life was the same, especially because 
I didn't think I deserved any of this. I'm like, I don't know why you're going through this trouble. I don't have the potential that you're talking about. And of course, my mom was like, yeah, whatever, you'll see. And then eventually I caught up with my mom's expectations, but not before she showed me that everybody deserves to be fought for. Everybody deserves an opportunity. Nobody gets to be overlooked. And so when she's passing the baton on to me, it's like, I have to live like this. There is no other objective because what if she hadn't have done all that for me? That's really the definition of to be seen and have vision around extracting and pulling out the best and what's possible in other people. So pivoting the conversation a bit, I know that there is discussion about NFTs and art and some pretty amazing things on the horizon or at the cusp and the precipice of some new opportunities. And I wanted to ask you about that. After what has been the most amazing four and a half year run at Netflix, I'm moving on. And I just want to punctuate the fact that I've loved everything that I've done here. I've been able to do this work with purpose in ways that I did not think was possible in a corporate environment, including one of my proudest achievements, which is this $100 million black banking initiative where I got this idea, Netflix supported the idea, allowed me to lead this initiative to take $100 million of our excess cash and move it into Black banks and financial institutions directly serving Black communities as a way to do our business because we have to keep our money in a bank anyway. So why don't we bend the aperture of banks that we will include as partners? And then those banks are uniquely situated to fund lending, business opportunities, et cetera, in these communities that for almost the entirety of American history have been disconnected from major capital markets, have been capital starved, capital isolated. And I was able to do that work at Netflix in a way that 100% aligns with our capitalistic endeavors, while at the same time as serving a, a significant purpose to communities that we don't necessarily need to serve. Not only was it a super important moment for me, for Netflix as a company, but it sparked this movement of corporations across corporate America doing the same. So billions of dollars has now moved in that direction. I share all of that to say everything that I do from now on, I feel like I have to do work that is at the intersection of business impact and social impact because it would feel like I'm cheating if I'm not doing it because it's possible and it's possible without it being a distraction or a detriment to the business. I always thought that was true, but I never got to work in a place that made sure that it was true. What's next after this? I'm gonna finish a memoir that I started not too long after the Black Banking Initiative. I've told you snippets of my upbringing, and I hope there's a lesson for folks who maybe look at themselves and don't see somebody who is capable of certain things, certain changes, because again, I didn't see it. And if it hadn't been for a mother who refused to allow me to see myself as anything, but I would not be who I am. I would not be where I am. But not everybody is lucky enough or fortunate enough for that just to be a part of their everyday life. So I want people to be seen in that. Because again, I was pathetic for a really long time. And it's now part of my success story. But I know so many people who didn't necessarily turn that corner. So that's one thing I'm super excited about. The second thing, which you mentioned, is this NFT collection. I mentioned having gone down to Brazil. I'm in the process of building a small company 
to launch an NFT collection that's going to bring my love of art, my love of Brazil and all of the beautiful culture that emanates from this place and this desire to see people who deserve capital, who deserve opportunity, have access to it. And the way that's going to all happen with this NFT collection is that we're building a collection that's going to have what I think is really cool, interesting art. And this art will tell a story of Salvador without telling a story. It's not obviously in your face. It's a bit more subtle. It feels more fun, more accessible, very much in this graffiti street art aesthetic, which paints the landscape of Salvador, Brazil. In order to do this, we worked with a local artist who grew up in the favelas, who lives, breathes every aspect of the Salvador culture. So we were going for authenticity in everything that we're doing. But in doing so, we're elevating this individual. We're making this person a part of the team. We're making this artist a founding member so that all the proceeds, all the benefit that we receive, this individual receives a, a very large stake in that upside because we want to build something that not only expresses the beauty of Salvador to the world, but something that benefits Salvador itself. The way we're approaching that is not only will this collection be cool art, the people who hold these NFTs will have the utility of access to certain apparel, certain things that are going to be exclusively and very authentically and unapologetically Salvador, Brazil, only available to people who are part of this now special club, including an experience to go down to Salvador, Brazil. So if you hold a certain number of these things, you can experience all the beauty, the smells, the tastes, the music, the sounds, everything that Salvador has to offer merely by being a part of this club and holding on to this art. And we've created a model where the proceeds, the royalties go directly to the artist. Because one of the things that we bumped into and one of the things that was really an inspiration for this was when we tried to invest in this artist that we met because he was building a game and we thought the game was cool and that was our initial interest. It took us three months to get him a very small sum of money because the banks in Brazil experienced this young Afro-Brazilian individual with tattoos from the favela as somebody who may not be reputable enough to receive that funding. And so for all the same reasons that I was excited for Netflix to start banking directly with black banks, because so many people had been isolated from capital, not because they weren't deserving, but merely because they were part of a system that did not see them as whole. We want to do the same in Salvador, Brazil, by making people directly a part of the system. And crypto allows us to bypass a banking system that may not be ready to create the equity that we think we can create with crypto. That's incredible. And also, it speaks to the same common theme about finding that resonance centerpiece of purpose, for sure, and also creating a two-way dialogue. It's not about givers and receivers. Everybody exactly. sits at both ends of that continuum. So you're a holder, you're a giver. And it's not about helping. It's about enabling. We are not going to Salvador to save Salvador. We are merely trying to create access that was otherwise impeded. And in both directions, it's exposing what's there and then supporting. Yep. Wow. And it's an amazing model to think through and pulling together all the different threads and all the different life experiences and pieces and insight and intuition, creating that two-way dialogue is where the magic happens between humans. And Absolutely. what I'm hearing also is using these tech solutions or these digital solutions that 
bring people closer. My first exposure to Salvador, Brazil was when I was 13 years old. It was summer after my freshman year. I was a janitor at a middle school and I found this flyer for capoeira, which is the Brazilian martial art that actually comes from Salvador, Brazil. My father had done capoeira back in New York before I was born. So I knew something about it, but I didn't know much about it. So I'm like, hey, dad, we should check this out. So my dad takes me, we go down to the capoeira and immediately it's like, oh, it's martial arts, but it's also dance and it's also music. And a big part of every single class, you had to play musical instruments. At this point, now I'm a musician. And so I'm like, oh, there's an access point through music. So again, music is this universal thing that has tied me to so many things. So by the time I get to Salvador last October, I've been immersing myself in aspects of this culture since I was 13 years old. And so going to Salvador almost felt like going home. So the art that we're curating in a way are stories that have been trying to tell themselves for 500 years. And we are just merely vessels to unlock that for the world. I hear your mother's influence. See it, extract it, and create space for it to grow and be exposed and to enable and empower. Wow. Really extraordinary to hear how these pieces come together with such thought and planned intuition. Can't always plan the outcomes, but planning with intuition and meaning also seems to be a common theme. So Aaron, we're big into swag, not necessarily the swag bags, but spiritual swag, as we'll call it. There's so many things I heard today, so many pieces of insight for me personally to be able to walk away more informed and more inspired by what you've shared. What swag can we give everyone today? Here's one. We talked about how middle C, if left unchallenged, is the way that we look at all music. And until we have a different perspective, different entry point, that's just our fact. So this is going to feel completely disconnected, but trust me, I think it's connected. I recently read a book called Born in Blackness by Howard French. My swag bag item would be this book. And the reason being, there's two things that I took away from the book that I want to continue to expand upon. One of which is most of us who have been educated in the West, the continent of Africa and its role in history has sometimes been obscured or at least rewritten. And Howard French does an amazing job of going back through history to find what Africa's role was in shaping the modern world and in ways that you don't necessarily think of. Like for instance, This is that second nugget for me. The entire industrial revolution, which gave birth to a lot of the progress that we saw, modern nations were built upon this industrial revolution. That system was originated, unfortunately, on slave plantations. And the idea that you can talk about progress and prosperity without talking about some of the deepest and darkest parts of our history as humanity is incomplete. And it's not about understanding and laying blame. It's more about understanding so that we can make better choices. If you understand that the basis for the industrial revolution was forced labor, and you look at a modern industrial system that hasn't really reckoned with that, how can you ever do the thing where you're bringing business and social impact together and creating businesses that are built on purpose. You can't because you haven't addressed that root cause issue. But if you look at that and you're like, okay, you know what? But now we can do this differently. We have first to acknowledge this, then we can build something better 
not because we're trying to undo our past, our past got us here, but because we are now learned from that past and we can use that as a baseline to build better systems, to build better companies, to build better purpose. Because if we don't do that, what was the point of having to live through all of this? That is amazing and a great gift and something also that I think for myself, for sure, can bring into every day. Aaron, thank you. Your insight, your perspective, your history, what you've cultivated and what you've manufactured with all these different inputs in your life and the way you're contributing to the world is just inspiring. We are very grateful and what a privilege to have you. Thank you, Rachel. Listen on Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins. The show is produced by Ireland Meacham and mixed by Matt Noble with music by my nine-year-old son, Noam Kraus. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. I'm your host, Rachel Kraus. Thank you for listening.